Please be seated. And do keep open the Bibles at that passage from Mark. Uh, This is part of a sermon series, I think, through Mark's Gospel. And let's pray. Lord our God, your word is powerful to make us wise for salvation in Christ. And so we pray, take your powerful word tonight, write it on our hearts, that we may indeed be wise and full of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Amen. A couple of years ago, I climbed a a tall hill. I can hardly say it was a mountain, but a tall hill, about a two to three hour walk up, uh, overlooking Islamabad in Pakistan. I was uh, teaching, as I do every year in Pakistan, and on this particular Saturday, a free day, with some colleagues and friends, we walked to the top of the hill to get a view overlooking Islamabad towards Raupindi. It was not quite as hazy as it is in Kuala Lumpur, but it's quite hard to be that hazy, I suppose. It was quiet, peaceful, pleasant, very hot, and it was such a different atmosphere from down in the city with its noise and its bustle and its crowds and dirt and smells and, and heaving with people and traffic and chaos in a way. Up on the mountaintop, it, or hilltop at least, peaceful calm. It wasn't quite what we call a mountaintop experience. There was no great vision of angels or anything like that, but it was certainly a big contrast at the top of the hill compared to the bottom and the hustle and bustle of a big city. We use the term a mountaintop experience, not necessarily literally to go to the top of a mountain, but to speak about a sort of opening up a vision, uh, an exhilarating experience. It may have been that you were on the church camp last weekend and that was a great experience for you. You came away with a high and a buzz, exciting to be with Christian friends in fellowship together over a weekend and then crash on a Monday back to the routine, back to this world, back to the daily grind. Even Sundays can be like that as we give aside this day in our worship of God, we come together, we sing praises to God, we hear his words, we have fellowship, we're encouraged, we might be exhilarated about the word of God, about serving Jesus and crash tomorrow morning is Monday, back into the daily grind, back into this big bad world we go. Just before this episode in Mark's Gospel, Jesus had been literally on a mountain and literally he and with three of his disciples had a mountaintop experience. There at the top of the mountain, Peter, James and John, the three inner circle of the disciples, saw Jesus transfigured, dazzling, bright, white in front of them. They thought it was a great thing. Let's build tents. Let's stay here. They saw Moses and Elijah either side of him. But it didn't last. And down they came from the mountain and they're immediately confronted by what we've read about in this passage here. Jesus quickly plunged back into this big, bad world. The story seems to be told from one of those three disciples because as the story unfolds from verse 14 of chapter 9, It's told from the point of view of coming down the mountain and seeing what's been happening at the bottom. It's not told from one of the disciples of the crowd 
looking up to see Jesus and the disciples come, but from the other way around, which matches the tradition that Mark's gospel is reliant on Peter's witness, that Mark and Peter were related or friends at least, and Mark took a lot of testimony from Peter himself. And that's certainly the perspective at the beginning of this passage. When they came to the disciples, that is when Jesus and John and Mark, uh, John and Peter and James, when they came to the disciples down the mountain, the other nine disciples who didn't go up to the top, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. The scribes were the Jewish thought police of Jesus' day. Jewish leaders, a bit like Jairus or uh, Jawi in Malaysia to this day. They were out to make sure that people upheld the law of Moses down to every last detail. They worked with the Pharisees in this regard. Some say these scribes may have come up from Jerusalem specifically to investigate Jesus. Or maybe they were already there. Maybe they're local scribes. After all, you would imagine the thought police would be scattered around the country and not all based in the city of Jerusalem far away. And they're arguing. We're not told over what. Was it about the boy or the son who's ill? Was it about evil spirits? Or more likely, given the scribes, whenever they appear in the Gospels, it's an ominous threat to Jesus Perhaps they're talking about Jesus and arguing about Jesus. And who is this Jesus? Maybe they've come to take the opportunity to talk to these nine disciples while Jesus is away on top of the mountain. Maybe they can try and undermine their discipleship, try to find a way of getting at Jesus. The exact argument, we're not told what it's about. Jesus, in fact, asks them in verse 16, what are you arguing about with them? He may be speaking to the crowds who come to greet him. The crowds, in fact, are amazed to see him, which is unusual. When the crowds are amazed in Mark's gospel, it's because of something Jesus says or does. But here, he's just there. Why would they be amazed? Or is it that he's still bright and glowing from the transfiguration? Is that why they're amazed? Again, we're not told. And Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about? Is he asking the crowds, the disciples, or the scribes? In a way, it doesn't matter, and it's unclear. And the answer comes, well, the answer doesn't come. A voice comes from the crowd. And we're told that in verse 17. Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, a mark of respect and honor to Jesus I brought my son to you. Now, maybe the argument has been about this son, his illness, maybe the claim of having an evil spirit, maybe the attempt of exorcism to get the spirit out. Maybe that is the argument. But it's the father who speaks, the father who cries out to Jesus' teacher. Here is a man who has sought out Jesus specifically. But Jesus has not been there. And so he's met only with the disciples. This man explains to Jesus, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, unable to speak. And 
Whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples, because Jesus is not there, to cast it out, and they were not able, not powerful, to cast out this spirit. The New Testament's quite clear that there is a difference sometimes between illness and evil spirits. Not every illness is attributed to an evil spirit. Sometimes people reading the Gospels badly dismiss them as saying, oh, they just talked about evil spirits, but it's just an illness. And we would know this illness today perhaps as epilepsy because that's what it looks like. But this father is astute. He's perceptive. And he recognizes that his son, yes, is ill, but there's more than that. There is an evil spirit, as he'll say later in the passage, we'll come to it shortly, Whenever this boy or son is seized, the spirit is trying to push him into the fire or the water to destroy him. That's evil. That's seeking death. I remember when I was a teenager catching the train home from school and somebody had an epileptic fit on the train. There was somebody medically related nearby and the person obviously was used to this and were taken off the train at the next station. We've got no reason to doubt that there was any, anything particularly serious. There was no threat of trying to, as this person had a fit of pushing them off the train or under the tracks or something like that. There was no risk at that level. But for this boy, there is both the illness that we might call epilepsy as well as the pushing towards fire and water to kill him, to destroy him. That's evil. And that's what Jesus is being confronted with here as his mountaintop experience ends so abruptly. Here is evil at work. And from the top of the mountain, glowing, transfigured, Jesus is now on the front line of the battle zone. And we see that in his response to the Father In verse 19, he answered them, O faithless generation. Notice that he doesn't address that to the Father alone or to the disciples alone, but in fact to anyone and everyone. O faithless generation. And notice that he does not say, O evil generation, but faithless. That's the issue in this passage. Faithlessness, the lack of faith unbelief. That's the issue, and it comes back again throughout the verses that follow. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Here is Jesus, come from the transfigured mountain, and now bewailing the faithlessness of anyone and everyone. Bring him to me. And so they do. They brought the boy to him. And as the boy is brought to Jesus, the evil spirit in the boy 
is confronted by the perfect Son of God. We know that evil does not like to be near Jesus, does not like the name of Jesus, and recoils from Jesus. And that's what happens here, because when the Spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. It's not just a coincidence that the boy has another seizure. This is manifestly an evil spirit confronted by the holy God incarnate, Jesus Christ. We might expect Jesus immediately to call out the spirit, get out of him, go away. But before he does that, no. Jesus asks the father, how long has this been happening to him? At one level, that doesn't matter, but the answer is from childhood. This boy, as he's called, a son, may even be a man. The implication of from childhood suggests this has been going on for years. When Jesus says, how long have I got to bear with you, you faithless generation? Then Jesus asks the father, how long has this been going on? From childhood, this father has been enduring, not this faithless generation, but he's been enduring this evil attack for years. That shows its seriousness and its severity from childhood. And that's when the father explains a bit more to Jesus in verse 22. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. You imagine the wearisomeness of this man, this father. Maybe there's a mother, we don't know. Maybe there are friends and other family who help care, we don't know. But all the time being on the alert that if the son should have a seizure, they must make sure that he's safe from fire, from water, or anything that could cause death. You see, that's the issue here. It's not just that he's sick. Evil loves death. Evil hates life. And evil in particular loves death without Jesus. Right from the beginning, Satan masquerading as a serpent in the Garden of Eden, tempting the man and the woman to rebel against God, and the consequence of their rebellion, cut off from the tree of life despite the deception that you will not die, which is what the serpent said. Satan desires destruction. Satan desires death, a death with a sting. And that's why this boy has not just sickness, but an evil spirit. And we see the same today. Those who glory and boast in disgusting death in the Middle East. That's evil. Those who are terrorists, suicide or not, killing people, that's evil. And those who shoot their guns at random at various school students or others in the United States or elsewhere, that's evil. And so it is when in the West, in a sort of sophisticated way, 
We promote abortion, for example, or euthanasia in some countries. That's evil. Why, just from my home country, Australia, this week, an anti-abortion campaigner from the United States is refused entry and deported simply because he is against abortion. That is evil. And evil delights in killing and delights in death. And it's that that Jesus is confronted with here. Having explained what the nature of his son's condition is, the man who had originally sought Jesus, but Jesus is not there, who turned instead to those nine disciples who were unable without power to cast out this spirit, the father then, desperate and distraught, says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It's sad and it's tragic. You can only feel for this father. If you can help us, please have compassion and help us if you can. And Jesus' reply is, in effect, if I can? Of course I can. His reply is, in a way, putting down the if. You say, if I can? Of, of course I can. I can do anything. And we might expect the next words to say on Jesus' lips, all things are possible to me. But no, Jesus doesn't say that. Rather, he says, all things are possible to those who believe. Because the real issue is not, can Jesus do it? The real issue is Jesus throws it back to the Father and, of course, to the crowds who are all listening. Can you believe it? I can do it. Can you believe it? Because you are a faithless, unbelieving generation. Can you believe? Will you believe? For all things are possible to those who believe, as Jesus says at the end of verse 23. You see, our world is not just full of evil. It is full of unbelief. It's full of faithlessness. And even in those who would call themselves Christian and claim to follow Jesus, and yet are full of unbelief, who dismiss the miracles, the reliability of the scriptures, the authenticity, the uniqueness of Christ and his death for us, who wipe it away as a myth, as a legend, who diminish Jesus to just being a good person, wise teacher. That's faithlessness. And in the end, it's evil as well. That's our world. That's the world of Monday through Saturday and, of course, on Sunday as well. And after your mountaintop day of Sunday, gathering with God's people, singing his praise, being exhilarated and lifted up and encouraged to serve Jesus, trust him and believe in him, how easy it is to be plunged into faithlessness and evil in this world. 
on Monday and onwards to doubt that Jesus really can remove that long-standing sin in your heart or mind, to doubt that Jesus could convert your friends who are atheists or Muslim or other, to doubt that Jesus can demolish the hard and corrupt hearts of leaders of so many countries of our world and bring them to humble faith in Christ, to doubt that the gospel can triumph in this country, in the Middle East, in this world, to doubt that Jesus can heal or reconcile or save, to doubt Jesus, not to believe him. How easy that is to go and plunge from this mountaintop into the big, bad, faithless world. But with Jesus, he says, all things are possible for those who believe. He's not saying that he is limited by our unbelief. Never is that the case. Jesus is God. He can do whatever he likes regardless of us. He's not dependent on our faith. But rather because with Jesus all things are possible, then in him and through him, for anyone who believes in him, all things become possible. And that's what he says to the Father, to the nine disciples, to the scribes, to the crowd and through Mark's gospel to us as well. The answer to faithlessness is Jesus. And he's drawing attention to himself. He is able, he can, he is powerful. He's the answer to faithlessness. And so the father responds with these famous words, I believe help my unbelief. It seems paradoxical. It seems confusing. But here is a heartfelt cry. I believe, help my unbelief. What he's saying is, I don't understand everything. Jesus, I don't appreciate or understand the the source of your power, but I know I need you. I'm helpless without you. I believe to help my unbelief. And that's what faith is. Faith doesn't have to understand everything. Faith, empty-handed, trusts Jesus. It's Jesus who is the answer to faithlessness. And so it is at the end of this passage actually the same. The disciples after Jesus heals say, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus says, well, this kind, you need prayer. Not prayer that's a magic, superstitious formula as though somehow you recite a particular magical prayer and bingo, the evil spirits go running away. Not that. But prayer expresses dependence on Jesus. And so it could be implied by this at the end of the passage that these disciples who have healed others, maybe now they think, oh, we've got the power, we can do it. We're powerful. And then they couldn't because they've not seen where the power comes from. It comes from Jesus in whom all things are possible, not in them, not in themselves. So to the Father, to the disciples, Jesus is saying, it all comes back to me. The answer to faithlessness is Jesus. I'm able. With me, all things are possible. Can you believe that, you faithless, unbelieving generation? So Jesus heals the boy and immediately it seems that it's been a tragic error because the boy looks dead. The evil spirit comes out of him, he looks like a corpse and people start saying, oh, oh, is he dead? 
And then Jesus touches him with his arm and raises him up and he's alive from what appeared to be death. The language that's used is the same language used earlier where a person is dead, the daughter of Jairus, and Jesus reaches out and lifts or raises up that girl who was dead and she lives. And of course that language also anticipates the climax of this gospel where there is a death, the biggest death, and God raises Jesus from death. You see, the triumph over evil here is not when the boy is raised with the evil spirit gone. The triumph over evil is Easter Day, the climax of this gospel, and the resurrection of Jesus himself from the dead. This story, as we've read it and heard it tonight, is sandwiched by a paragraph before and after, both of which speak of Jesus' anticipated suffering and resurrection. And it's as if Mark, by putting this in this order, is guiding us to the key of this story. All things are possible with Jesus because Jesus conquered death. Yes, he suffered. Yes, he received the hatred hurled at him as he was nailed naked on a cross. Yes, the evil forces of this world were arrayed against him in their fullest strength. He was dead, buried. But he was raised from death, alive and is alive. Death defeated. Life brought in, not death. That's the key. That's where Satan is dethroned. That's where the evil spirits are emasculated once and for all. Brothers and sisters, will we remain as part of this evil, uh, sorry, faithless generation? Where we go from this mountaintop of a Sunday into this world that lacks faith, a world that is so permeated with evil. Will we be absorbed into that faithless generation and world? Or will we instead keep faith? Will we have faith in this Jesus, in whom all things are possible? In this life-giving Jesus, in this Jesus who's conquered death, who lives now forever and reigns over all. In this evil and faithless world and generation, will we have faith in him? Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you that in Jesus' death and resurrection, evil is conquered, death is defeated, and all things are possible in him. So help our unbelief that we believe all the time, in all of our lives, in this great Jesus. Amen.